Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. For this special military history episode, we speak with David Silby, Jay Lockenauer, and Edward Westerman. David Silby is the series editor for our book series, Battlegrounds, Cornell Studies in Military History. He is the associate director of the Cornell and Washington program and adjunct associate professor at Cornell University. He specializes in the industrialized total wars of the 20th century and the asymmetric responses to those wars that evolved after 1945. Jay Lockenauer is Associate Professor of History at Temple University and author of the new book, Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Erich Ludendorff in the Weimar Republic and Third Reich. He is also the author of Soldiers as Citizens and former host of the New Books in Military History podcast. Edward Westerman is Professor of History at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and author of the new Cornell book, Drunk on Genocide, Alcohol and Mass Murder in Nazi Germany. He is a commissioner on the Texas Holocaust and Genocide Commission, and also the author of Hitler's Ostkrieg and the Indian Wars. We spoke to David, Jay, and Edward about the Battlegrounds series, each of their new books, as well as the topics in military history they are most interested in exploring this coming year. Hello, David, Ed, and Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, it's a pleasure having you all here uh, on this May morning. We're on the eve of the Society for Military History annual meeting uh, this May 20th through the 23rd in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and uh, one of the things we're going to be uh, promoting uh, at the conference is our series, Battlegrounds, Cornell Studies in Military History. David is the series editor and wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the series and also the background about how it got started. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan, and, and thanks for having us on. It's uh, it's great to be here right before the, the conference. Um, military history is kind of an interesting subspecialty of history. It's uh, it's wildly popular, um, which is a little bit of an oddity for historians. Um, it's not necessarily terribly well integrated uh, with the rest of history uh, and historians, and it's tended to divide itself over the last couple of decades into not warring camps, um, but but separate camps, uh, camps that look at things like operations and battles and camps that focus more on society and culture and, and, and that side uh, of war. And so what the Battleground series is trying to do is trying to sort of reunite um, all of those uh, camps within, within the big tent, which is to say, if you think about a battle, you have to think about the society and culture that sent the armies to fight there. If you think about a war, you have to think about the people and the uh, perceptions and the ideas that they had in, in trying to uh, fight this conflict. And on the flip side, if you focus on the, the societies and cultures that are fighting war uh, and want to look at, at war and society uh, topics, you also have to think about the fact that these organizations are thinking about the battlefield. They're thinking about going to war. And that's an important thing to bring in um, as well. And so when Emily Andrew, the senior editor at, at Cornell uh, University Press, who is the real star of the show, by the way, 
Um, I just wander around and say yes or no to things uh, occasionally. Um, approach me about uh, developing a series. That was sort of the underpinning of it, a, a chance to not only reunify or, or try to unify some of the camps within military history, but also then start to engage with the larger historical profession and other areas of scholarship and say to them, hey, what we're doing is important to what you're doing and what you're doing is important to what we're doing. And so let's all figure out how to come together and talk about those things. Oh, that's great, that's great. Well, we're proud as, as, uh, as you know, to have two of the authors in the series uh, on this podcast, uh, Edward Westerman and Jay Lockenauer. And we'll start with Ed. Uh, both of you have had a, a book come out this spring. Uh, Ed's book is Drunk on Genocide, Alcohol and Mass Murder in Nazi Germany. Ed, could you tell us um, what inspired you to write this book and, and some of the key findings you have within the book? Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And it's great, uh, it's great to be here and uh, uh, to have this opportunity to talk about the book. But uh, I've spent uh, about 30 years looking at uh, perpetrator studies and looking at military history as well. And so one of the things that uh, happened as I was looking through the literature, uh, alcohol is prevalent in the literature in discussions of use by perpetrators and witness testimony and survivor testimony. You saw it. So it was a topic that I say was hiding in plain sight. And as I started to look at that topic, uh, I really was struck by how the perpetrators used alcohol in the many ways they used it in uh, in particular in the way it was integrated into things like celebratory ritual that i talk about uh, acts of physical and sexual abuse uh, by the perpetrators themselves and how this idea of alcohol use was also tied to a larger sense of intoxication of control over these other populations and uh, that also tied back uh, to perceptions of masculinity within German society at the time. So I was able to really start to draw a number of collection, uh, connections that uh, kind of crossed over, not only from history, but into the social sciences. And to look at these connections, as David was talking about in a broader sense, uh, to kind of expand my understanding of military history. Excellent, excellent. Now it's difficult to choose uh, within a book, but what are what's one of the most important things you'd like readers to understand after reading the, the book? Or is there is there an anecdote or is there a section in the book that's really fascinating that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, there's really a couple of very horrific. Uh, this is a horrific book to read. It's a very difficult book to read because of the subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there are times when I was writing this book where you really have to take uh, put the book down or put even your sources down. And one example of that was Ruth Elias, who was a young, uh, a young woman at Auschwitz. And she arrived at Auschwitz as a 20-year-old and was put into a barracks that also housed the Mel, uh, the Mel Orchestra for the camp. And in her testimony after the war, she recalled uh, being in the top bunk in that barrack and hearing these SS, drunken SS men arrive who were singing. And they, they open the door, they come barging into the barrack. And the first thing that they do is they say the orchestra, they wake up the male orchestra and tell them to start playing. Uh, and then the next thing they do is they start grabbing these women and start uh, to assault them. And the line that will always stick with me from Ruth Elias is that the music had to play. 
So the staging of this uh, of this event uh, with this malice of forethought, if you will, of these drunken SS men, uh, that's something I'll never forget. And, and the second thing I think that what this book does uh, as a contribution to the field uh, is that often coping has been the primary discussion of alcohol use by the perpetrators, that the only way they could get through their days was by drinking. And I think what this book does is it really complicates that narrative. While coping was in fact uh, used by some of the perpetrators, it is not the only reason and the only mechanism of alcohol use uh, in the Holocaust. And in some cases, it's not even the primary. So I think that's an important contribution of the work. Wow, wow. Thank you for sharing that, that story. It's, it's chilling. Um, and the combination of war, which is already hell, um, and combined with alcohol, which makes the soldiers unpredictable. I mean, I can only imagine um, the, the combination being so deadly. So thank you so much. Um, uh, Jay, uh, Jay, has Jay Lockenauer has uh, a new book uh, that coming out that has come out this spring, Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Eric Ludendorff in the Weimar Republic and Third Reich. Jay, tell us about your book. Well, it's uh, hard to follow on Ed's narrative, which is so, uh, so somber. Uh, but I was asked many years ago to write some encyclopedia entries for an encyclopedia of antisemitism on Eric Ludendorff, his second wife, Matilda, and their publishing company. And I was, I was struck not so much by the offer, but by the, the combination. I, I, I thought I knew a lot about Eric Ludendorff. I'd written a, a long paper as an undergraduate uh, on him and the, his role in the Third Supreme Command, the leadership of the German army after 1916 during World War I. But I had I had no clue who his second wife was and why they had a publishing company. I had no idea, so I was I was curious to explore this and and fascinated when I discovered this long afterlife that Ludendorff had after 1918. Most most biographies um, sort of trail off. They they see him riding off into the sunset after the end of the war. Maybe you know mention his dalliance with with Hitler in the early 20s, but it's a symptom seen as a symptom of kind of mental illness on his part that he's suffered some sort of breakdown. But he, he is the, the most important figure on the radical right wing of German politics, at least until 1925. And I, and I argue uh, many years beyond that. He has this fascinating uh, afterlife during the Third Reich when as, a, as an opponent of Hitler and the Nazis, but from a more farther right wing anti-Semitic position in many ways, um, he enjoys a certain kind of gesture's freedom to say what he will. Uh, and then even into the history of the Federal Republic after the war, uh, his wife lives until 1966 and carries on their campaign on behalf of this, this pagan religion that they found. So what I discovered was this extraordinary person who had been a, a, a and, and despicable, let's just uh, put, put that to the side, uh, who had this amazing military career that we all know a lot about, but then... Um, also a kind of political and religious um, again, afterlife in that, that my argument is kind of poisons the political culture of the Weimar Republic in a way that, um, that leads to the, the, the Nazi seizure of power and the, and the war and the Holocaust and things like that. And he's not directly responsible, of course, but, but he plays this important uh, transitional role Excellent, excellent. And within within your book, um, there are many stories of Ludendorff. What is one that comes to mind that is memorable to you? 
So, so one that I think, I, I don't know what it means exactly, but it's one that uh, surprises people when they hear it. So his, his group after 1926 or so, uh, he becomes staunchly anti-Nazi and, and writes a lot about um, Hitler and kind of satirical ways, cartoons and so forth, lampoons the Nazis. He sees them as part of this uh, a Jewish Catholic conspiracy to destroy Germany. So that that that'll just be your introduction there. You have to read more to find out. Um, but so when when after the Nazis take power in in January of 1933, there's a lot of consternation among this group that oh you know what do we do now? We, they've taken such a public stance against the Nazis, and then. Uh, the night of the long knives. So the, this is the, when the, the Nazis take out the leadership of the SA, this sort of internal feud that they'd been having with Rome and others. There's enormous concern among Ludendorff's followers that they might be next, right? Because they were close to the Nazis. They were anti-Semitic. They were, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot like Rome. Um, they worried that they might be next, but the leadership showed no concern whatsoever. And in fact, there's an exchange of letters the day after the Night of the Long Knives in early July, 1934, uh, in which they, they congratulate themselves, essentially, that they knew this was coming. Um, and, and they finally took care of that, they call him a 175er, so, which is a, a slang term for homosexual in Germany. Um, the law that criminalized homosexuality was the paragraph 175 in the German uh, criminal code. So that they finally got rid of this 175 of a room that they've been telling, you know, telling the Nazis about all along. Uh, so, so the 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 machinations, the the you know, the the way that this this group operated, uh, I, thought, I thought was revealed in a really interesting way. That at that moment, um, that they were both threatened and yet on the inside. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, when when we were um, when we were choosing the the cover image, you had provided some images of Ludendorff, mm -hmm. and there was one that he was looking straight at the camera that he looked basically on the verge of insanity. Uh, that there was there's his, there, there's something in his eyes that you would just you didn't want to look into his eyes, um, and so I can see a kind of a parallel between Ed's book of the unpredictable unpredictable nature of people that are drunk. And then the un un unpredictable nature of Ludendorff that he could do anything. Yeah, so I, I'm, one of my main arguments is that he wasn't. I, I can't, I'm not fit to diagnose whether he was insane or mentally ill in some meaningful way. Um, you know, Hitler was insane in by a kind of common definition, right? I mean, there was something not right about that guy. Um, and in the same sense, you could say that about Ludendorff. But why does it matter? Why you know that doesn't we don't dismiss Hitler because he was sure. insane. So why would we dismiss Ludendorff because he was insane? And I think there's, a, there's something to be drawn out there in Ludendorff's and maybe Hitler's uh, role as a prophet. And so Ludendorff saw himself as a, as a prophet. And that, that stare is, a, is, a, is a, a, a guise that prophets adopt, right? I mean, that, that's how you look prophetic is the stare, that, that face. And so he was playing a role. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't in any way uh, implying to dismiss him, but I could see how he'd rise to power, given that people couldn't necessarily um, predict his, his actions. Or stand to be around him, because he was- Yeah, that, that too. That's and and having spent 10 years of my life with him, uh, you know, believe me, I'm, I'm ready to be done. I'm, I want a divorce. <laughs> okay. 
Well, your book is is you yes. Um, we'll get into we'll get into, into what you're interested in next. Uh, but we want to hear um, uh, from David. Uh, we he has a, a book, not necessarily in the series, but it's uh, it's coming out in June. The other face of battle: America's forgotten wars and the experience of combat. It's a co-authored book. Just wanted to hear about this uh, forthcoming book, David. Yeah, and and actually, let me let me sort of start off by by pointing out how well both Ed and Jay's book sort of make our sense of these two periods of, of military history much more sophisticated and much more complicated um, in the sense that you, when you think about what Ed has shown, um, which, is, which is not, uh, uh, has not, not been completely untalked about before, but is the way that drugs and especially alcohol was in common use, both as compensation, but also in a celebratory way, for soldiers in the German army, for soldiers around the world. And so when you sort of understand that, that drugs and alcohol shape the way soldiers behave, that, that really changes your perception of how the war is going, how the Holocaust happened, um, and, and all the areas in there. And then with Jay's book, you know, Hitler really made a very concerted effort to create a mythology around the Third Reich. And what I think Jay is really showing is that's not just something that he came up with or that was uncommon because Ludendorff did exactly or, or similar things um, himself, sort of created this idea of that linked him back to um, a, a whole sort of somewhat uh, sort of fake mythology uh, on that one. And that gives us a much deeper insight uh, into, into, into the German military uh, history of the time. And, you know, if you want to get all the way down to the battlefield, and I, and, and I know I'm sort of talking for, to the two gentlemen, but if you want to get all the way down to the battlefield, one thing about German soldiers in World War II was that they showed amazing cohesion on the battlefield. They were remarkably strong at, at holding together, even in horribly disastrous uh, moments. And I think if you think about both the alcohol and then about this mythology, you start to understand some of that battlefield cohesion. So it's it's linking the two kinds of military history that I was um, that I was talking about earlier. Um, my book, uh, which is with a publisher I will not name um, because I think uh, I would immediately be fired by Cornell and, and have to, okay. absolutely um, is, but fits into that same uh, that same sort of uh, approach which is that when you think about the wars that the United States wants to remember, um, we, can, we can think about of them immediately, the Civil War, World War II, um, Vietnam to a certain extent, the Revolutionary War. Almost all of those are big conventional wars against enemies that we share a culture with or share a similar culture with, with the exception of Vietnam. Um, but when you look at the wars that the United States has actually fought over the past two centuries, a lot more of the wars are against, are against much more unfamiliar opponents, um, opponents that don't share a cult cultural heritage with us, opponents that don't um, understand, uh, that we don't understand um, either on the battlefield or in, in a larger way in society. And so the book, and with my co-authors, Wayne Lee, David Preston, and Anthony Carlson, we wanted to look at three battles throughout American history that were not the familiar ones, not Gettysburg, not Pearl Harbor, not um, uh, 
D-Day, but the unfamiliar ones, the other faces uh, of battle, to try and understand what the American experience was like when we were fighting enemies we didn't understand or that we thought of as inferior to us. Um, and so the book is, uh, which I should note, makes a great gift for any occasion, um, which is coming out uh, in early okay. June, is, uh, is really trying to get a sense of what it's like when we're not fighting a war we understand, when we're not fighting a familiar enemy, but when we're sort of lost um, in the war that we find ourselves. Interesting, interesting. Well, yes, excellent. That's coming out in June. Um, so thanks for, thanks for sharing and letting us know about it. Um, and so uh, getting back uh, to uh, Jay and Ed, uh, I was curious, uh, Jay, for uh, you had mentioned that you're, you're done with Ludendorff. It's been 10 years. You're ready for a divorce. Okay, what's next? What's, what's next uh, on the horizon for you? So it, this started with an anecdote from my dissertation, Logos, many years ago, uh, where the Veterans Organization of the German Africa Corps made a great show of a soccer match that they played every year at their annual convention against the British Eighth Army. And this was supposed to symbolize for this group their, their kind of organizational ideology was that they had fought the fair fight in the desert, right? This wasn't the war of atrocity on the Eastern Front. We were the good, you know, we, we fought a regular war in North Africa. And so it could be embodied in the sportsmanship of this soccer match uh, that had to be canceled then in the late 1950s as the German Africa Corps got to be older and the British Eighth Army stayed 20 years old. Uh, so they were getting, there were injuries. There was a blow, like the last, the last meeting, I think was a seven nil blowout um, with multiple injuries on the German side. So they, they called it off. And, and that kind of always stuck, stuck with me. Like why, why do they invest so much in this sporting competition? And so that's what I'm exploring now is the, is the idea of sports in the military or sports in war. I, I haven't quite figured out which angle to take yet, but it's starting with a a study of the post-war Bundeswehr and the National People's Army in, in East Germany and sort of their investment in, in sports, what they, what, they, what the institutions hope to get out of it. Um, and then, but also uh, what, what participants hoped to get out of it or imagined that they were getting out of it. Um, I think it will be part of the, the interest in that story as well. Excellent, that's fascinating, that's fascinating. And Ed, what's on, what's on the horizon for you? Oh, actually, I think Jay's topic is great. So I'm going to start working on that right now. I'll try to get into it. No, actually, uh, uh, I'm going to continue. Actually, one of the things that uh, came out of this book, uh, as I was looking at it, I talk about this idea of recreational violence. And I've done a previous book that was a comparative book between the Nazi East and the U.S. West. And uh, I see that uh, this concept of recreation or recreational violence or spectacular violence is something that kind of crosses boundaries, it crosses chronology of warfare. Uh, and it's something that uh, also speaks to some of that social science literature that I talked about that we can integrate into our historical studies. So it's an area that I'm really interested in exploring more and to see if there's something there uh, for a larger monograph. Excellent, excellent. Thanks for sharing. That sounds great. You've got a nice hook there. Recreational violence is a, that's a, that's a hook. It's going to be another cheerful book for you to work on, Ed. Yeah, I know. Boy, yeah. If people don't want to meet me probably if they haven't met me. They probably think, oh my gosh, what's that guy going to look? I'm going to look like Ludendorff with the stare. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, 
So yeah, so the, the meeting's coming up, the annual meeting, as I mentioned earlier. Um, what, uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll step aside for a second and say, what, what are you interested in or what do you look for at the meeting? And, and, uh, and then we'll bring in David as well to bring it kind of a holistic look at the series as well. But um, Ed, what are you looking forward to at the meeting? Well, one of the things I think that is really exciting about where the SMH has gone is uh, some of the things that David has talked about. I think the series represents, if you will, a turn uh, in the uh, in the field of uh, military history. We have called it in the past the new military history, but I think what you really see uh, is a broad uh, a broadening of the field uh, to look at uh, cultural aspects of preparation for war, uh, societal impacts. Uh, uh, gender certainly has been uh, one of the things that we've seen broaden in participation of those who are attending uh, methodologies that are used. So I think the exciting thing really about uh, SMH is uh, you get to see a really broad sampling of a lot of, new, uh, a lot of new approaches to military history. And I think that's probably the most interesting thing that I've seen in the last, let's say 10 years uh, at the SMH. Excellent, excellent. Jay, what are you excited about for the upcoming SMH? Well, I, I would echo what, what Ed said, of course. It's, uh, I always find uh, the conference kind of invigorating, uh, energizing, just to see what people are working on, to connect with colleagues again, to, you know, it, it, it helps you understand why what, what we do is, is important. And, and uh, again, the broad range of, of topics that are addressed. I always have a little bit of a hard time with this notion of like the new military history, which of course we've been talking about since 1970s, right? I mean, there were, there were essays on the, the dilemma of military history, you know, Dennis Showalter and people like that writing in the 1970s. So it, it, it's new, it's, it's invigorating, of course, um, but it's also kind of old. There, there was good work being done a long time ago, too. Nice, nice. Um, and then David, uh, rounding it up, uh, what are you excited about at the conference and how do you see the Battleground series fitting into the, to the field? Uh, yeah, so the, uh, you know, the Society for Military History Annual Conference is also my big social event. Uh, of the year. Um, I got my PhD from Duke and the, the, the Duke mafia will, uh, will reunite um, and uh, discuss what's wrong with the world and how to, how to fix it. Um, Ed got is at UNC. So he's only marginally a member uh, of that, uh, of that group. And Jay's just way off somewhere um, on that. But temple, so, so that temple mafia though. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. The, the temple I mean, mafia I mean, may, be, may be bigger than the Duke mafia. Um, but, uh, uh, in terms of, in terms of the conference, this is also really where as the series editor, I get a sense of what's coming down the pike, um, in the future, both for grad students presenting what they're working on, on their dissertations, young scholars on their, on their first project, and then more established folks, um, like Ed and Jay, who are trying out uh, their initial projects. And so, um, one of the great parts of this is you sort of, get to see folks standing up and talking about what they're working on and, and see if there's a nugget there or a fully formed um, topic that, that will fit right into the, um, into the series. Uh, you know, and there's nothing, nothing greater than uh, as editor sort of expressing an interest in someone's project, because I think as we all know, academic publishing can be tough, um, especially sort of in the, in the current world. Um, and so to sort of chat with someone and, and talk about what they're doing and show interest in it 
um, is is really just sort of a, a wonderful experience uh, for me. Um, heck, scholars, you know, scholars are, are love it when anybody's interested in the in the massively obscure topic they're working on anyway. So uh, that's all good um, on that one. In terms of the in terms of the battlegrounds, the the my my gosh, the the possibilities are endless um, for what what direction, what kind of projects we can we can pull in. And, and I just highlight a couple of things um, that we are really, I think, thinking about. And um, one of those is, is sort of something that we've all hinted at, but it's the idea that there are a lot of lost voices, lost perspectives in military history and, and in history in general. And I think about I think about women. Um, I think about uh, 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 communities of color. Um, I think about a whole range of different folks and people who don't haven't appeared in the regular uh, military history. Um, you know, you think if American military history is almost always going to be from the perspective of the American military from the United States, and yet it'd be fascinating to look at what people who were fighting the US experienced, understood what they thought was going on. We're getting some of that with Vietnam, um, but there are so many other wars that, that really need to be balanced with those, um, with those kind of perspectives. Even sort of remaking wars we think we understand, you know, that's very clear that there was a uh, insurgency going on in the American South during the Civil War where formerly enslaved people were breaking free and, and fighting back. And yet none of a very little of that history has appeared in the um, uh, in the in the historical record. And so when I think about where the series is going to go, what I think about is is recovering those kind of voices, understanding those kind of voices um, and really beginning to give them the kind of uh, prominence uh, and understanding that they deserve, um, you know, and 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 sort of the things we've got coming out are beginning to do some of that um, and, and beginning to build on that. Whether it's looking, we have a, a books coming on the in the near future. Uh, whether it's looking at how German civilians experienced the uh, Soviet invasion uh, of their homeland in '44 uh, or '45, um, or to go in a whole different direction, how uh, American fighter pilot culture shaped how the U.S. Air Force behaved in the 1960s and 70s. It's that it's that getting those voices front and center that you otherwise don't get to hear um, in in regular military history. And then finally, and I think most importantly, is bringing all the camps of military history together and publishing the kind of quality and really amazing books that that Ed and Jay have written. That's, I think, the real accomplishment is those are those are spectacular works. Um, and I'm just proud to have participated in them and so participated on those projects in some way. Wow, that's very, very inspiring. Yes, the, as you said, the the series is unlimited as far as these untold stories. There's countless untold stories. And uh, we're honored to have uh, you all of you as, as team players and team members uh, bringing these new voices uh, to the forefront and, and changing the field in, in, in its own way. 
So I really, really uh, thank you for all the hard work that you've been doing. Um, congratulate you on all of the great scholarship and the new books that you that are coming out this year. So, um, and I want to thank you as, as well for just taking the time to, to share uh, your stories, your insights, and uh, your new books. And uh, we hope that you have a fantastic time at the upcoming conference. Well, uh, Thank thanks, you. Jonathan. If I could, I would like to just respond that, you know, UNC Duke had a joint program and we were always as UNCers uh, happy to help the Duke uh, students, you know, to learn more. And uh, the other thing that I would, uh, the other thing I would point out, and David already said this, uh, uh, Emily Andrew was very enthusiastic when I pitched this project. And David is absolutely right, uh, getting an editor who really sees the value of your work and, and is willing to, uh, to fight for that uh, really makes a huge difference. So I, I very much appreciated that. And I very much appreciated the time to spend with, uh, with you all today. Thank you. Thank you. Know. Thank you. Thank you. That was David Silby, Jay Lockenauer, and Edward Westerman. If you'd like to purchase Jay and Edward's new books, or any other book in our Battlegrounds series, please use the special promo code 09EXP40 to save 40% on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>